0: Hello, my name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovari Weekly Podcast. I really like learning about and celebrating people who've passed. Here we are living in the space between the ages. Of course, in the prospect of eternity, our lives are like a blink of the eye, yet each generation is able to learn from the past. So renovari's president Chris Hall has been blogging about the passing of his friend and mentor Thomas Oden. So I sat down with him to talk about Tom's life, and in this we learn about Chris's roots for his love of the church fathers. Thanks for listening and enjoy.
1: Chris, how are you, sir? Good morning to you. Good to be
0: with you, Nate. Hey, thanks. So glad we get to we get to chat, and we get to talk about your friend. Yeah, we get to talk about Tom Odin. <laughs> but could you introduce people to Tom? Um, those who you know, many people would be familiar with him, but some wouldn't.
1: So maybe share a little bit about Tom's life. Sure. Uh, Tom grew up in Oklahoma City in Oklahoma. Actually, grew up in a city, uh, a smaller town. Out in the country, uh, Christian home, Methodist background, really, really uh, gifted intellectually Mm -hmm. and loved reading when when he was growing up. You can imagine such a thing. He would go to his dad's law office and read the law books. (laughs) He just had this mind. As a kid, he would read law books. He's just one of the, just a very remarkable, very remarkable guy. Uh, loved music, classical music, all kinds of music. Mm-hmm. Even the end of his life in the evenings, one of the things he loved to do would be to be in his bedroom. Sometimes I'd be sitting there in his bedroom with him, and he'd be watching old musicals, for example. <laughs> Anyways, uh, polymath, meaning. No he just he just knew stuff about almost everything hmm. as he got older he went to the University of Oklahoma was one of their best students went on to Yale Divinity School where he started uh, actually continuing his study of the Bible studying theology but he, as he would describe those years as a theologian he was really uh, he moved in a left wing direction okay mean uh, how would he describe himself uh, left- wing theologian following oftentimes the newest fad in theology. Okay. So uh, he was uh, attracted to modern thinking. He was attracted to uh, new ideas in a good way. Mm -hmm. New ideas can be really good. But also uh, in his thinking, the idea that if an idea is new, it must be better than an old idea. Okay. Almost in his thinking, and with some people today, I think it probably be fair to say, if it's new, there was a Gar- Garfield cartoon. Uh, if it's on television, it must be true. <laughs> these New, by definition, was better than old. And then what happened was, uh, when we got to 1968, he started to change and one of the, the key events for him when he was changing was the Democratic convention in Chicago hmm. I'd be a little bit young to remember this convention <laughs> I would think riots you know, violence in the street, police being uh, police assaulting people and being assaulted in return the seams in society during those years really following uh, falling apart this was the Bobby Kennedy. Right, shortly
0: after Bobby Kennedy's,
1: he was dead by then. Yeah, correctly. This is the convention to nominate uh, Hubert Humphrey. Mm-hmm. Hubert Humphrey, '68. Anyway, uh, so Tom saw saw the. In some ways, for him, I'm really trying to represent him uh, mm-hmm. as much as almost sometimes with quotes. He saw the fruit of some of his thinking. And he particularly mentions abortion. Mm-hmm. He was a very, very strong advocate of abortion and a left-wing position on lots of political issues. And when he saw the fruit of his thinking, he saw a lot of lives in his thinking, lives being lost. Um, he began to take a step back and just to reevaluate. Mm-hmm. I think the Lord was in some areas just pushing him in a new direction. So, so still, still writing books he was already well-known by this time. I mean, he he knew, he knew Carl. He had, he had visited Carl Bart, for example, when Carl, uh, Dr. Bart, was in uh, in the hospital in Switzerland, had a talk with him. Uh, just Tom was just a remarkable man with a remarkable circle of friends across the theological uh, spectrum. He wrote his dissertation, if memory serves me correctly, on some of... Uh, Rudolf Bultmann's thinking and so on. Uh, Rudolf Bultmann was a fairly radical New Testament scholar. I mean, that was the world. It was the world of radical theological and biblical scholarship that Tom lived in for years. Hmm. And he thought theologian's role was to create something new, okay. a new idea, new concept. That was the d- direction that he felt God was calling him to. But then, when he got to the late sixties, early seventies, his theology—the theology he had produced uh, up to that time—it was like dust in his mouth. When he was looking at the fruit that had been born by what he was advocating, so if that was a that was a, an important event in his life. He 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 would uh, bring it up not infrequently, sometimes in print. The Democratic Convention in nineteen sixty eight. Not, not, not simply the, the, the positions of the Democratic Party, but what was happening in our culture. Mm-hmm. He describes watching those scenes on television, the police beating up people, radicals fighting in response, outbreaks of violence on the convention floor, and so mm-hmm. on. So he, was, he just started to slow down. And he had been hired by Drew University, uh, where I got my doctorate under Tom, Born mm-hmm. uh, in New Jersey in Madison, taught to teach theology there. And it's a sweet, humorous, kind of a rough story for Tom. There was a Jewish philosopher, a Jewish philosopher, kind of a cranky old guy, curmudgeonly in some ways, but extremely bright, Will Herberg. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of our listeners have read Will. Will Herberg. And Tom had gotten to know Will. They were on the faculty together, had been on the faculty for five or six years together. Tom's still teaching pretty much along the same line in the early seventies that he had been in the past. And he had a conversation with Will and Will said to Tom, you will not be a genuine theologian until you've read the church fathers.
0: Hmm.
1: And Tom was shocked because he was well known as a theologian, Uh, deeply involved in the ecumenical movement in Geneva and around the world. The deeply, deeply well-read. Mm-hmm. But he hadn't read these ancient writers. And here you have a Jewish philosopher, Will Herberg, saying to Tom, you're not even a theologian yet. <laughs> theologian. Will had read these folks. Mm-hmm. He was not, but Will had read these folks. And he just said, Tom, you got to, in a manner of speaking, you've got to go back to the beginning. You've got to go back to the beginning and find out what, ancient Christians were writing about Christianity. you will not be a real theologian without this basis. I think you might have been thinking well maybe his thought will remain what it is but I think that will saw cracks in how Tom was thinking and a prejudice and the prejudice was a prejudice towards the modern over against the ancient hmm. And so will just wanted to put you back to these ancient sources. And uh, so Tom went back to the ancient sources and started reading these folk, folks and he read, was reading Nemesius. Now, Nemesius is, a, is not a major figure mm-hmm. in ancient, but he's reading Nemesius. And Tom says, quote, I knew I had to listen like I had never listened before. Mm. I I knew my life depended upon it. And he writes about Nemesius. And so the, the result of this turn back was that Tom ended up being both deeply, deep. he read these sources, these ancient sources. Uh, well, he read them from that point on. So he read them for the next 45, 50 years. Hmm. He'd already done his reading in these other sources. So he knew Freud. He knew Marx. He knew all these modern thinkers. He was deeply immersed in them. He was an expert on Kierkegaard. Hmm. He wrote a book uh, on Kierkegaard for Princeton University Press. I mean, when you look at what Tom wrote, the scope of his writing is, is really remarkable. So I do I want to encourage uh, listeners to read him. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with him, he, he has so much to offer. So what happened was I was a graduate student and was assigned to Tom to be my uh, mentor during graduate school. And, and, of course, by that time, if you're going to study with Tom, you're going to study ancient Christianity. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know about ancient Christianity. The only really ancient book I read was one with um, Jim Packer, J.I. Packer, at Regent College, when I had the opportunity to do directed study with him. And he, he put uh, Jim put Augustine's The City of God in my hand, and he said, Chris, read it, the whole book. <laughs> it was the first really ancient writer I had ever been immersed in. And I thought, wow, these are really interesting ideas. And and the the uh, relevance of these old ideas for the world I'm living in is quite profound. And then I ended up at Drew studying with Tom. And there's a phrase, anybody who knows Tom and, uh, He has a wide circle of friends. I'm just thinking of graduate students there who I continue to work with today Mm -hmm. who are in different academic positions. Anyone who's worked with Tom knows this phrase, the Holy Spirit has a history.
0: Uh Anyone who's worked with Chris knows this phrase.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm just replicating what my mentor taught me. My (laughs) mentor and in some ways father. The Holy Spirit has a history. So what Tom did for me was, he said, he said just like Will Herberg had said to him, in a very gentle way to his graduate students, he said, you you need to read these ancient sources. Mm-hmm. You might not stay here for the rest of your life, but you need to have this foundation. And what happened with me was I started reading them, and they were so interesting and relevant and deep and uh, nourishing and at times... Wacky and uh, strange and wonderful all at the same time. Sometimes they you know, they would say something and drive me crazy. I would think to myself, how could uh, anybody say something like that? Mm-hmm. What it forced me to do was to learn to listen, mm-hmm. to learn to listen. So Tom helped me uh, in many ways like uh, along those lines, just willing to expose myself to uh, to people I'm unfamiliar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, uh, to employ, well, you know, I, I've mentioned this to you before. I'll mention it to our listeners. Volterstorff's rule. Okay. So Nick Volterstorff, for a long time, was a professor uh, up at Yale. And once a week, uh, he would instruct his students to recite this rule. Quote, you have not represented your opponent's position fairly until you see your opponent sitting across the table from you opponent in the sense of advocating at a, an idea you don't agree with. Mm -hmm. You see your opponent sitting across the table, you represent his position and he smiles at you or she smiles at you and says, yes, that is indeed what I believe. (laughs) One of the things that Tom helped me with, learning to listen to voices that at first glance or first hearing were jarring in some ways.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Others, they, they lived, you know, well now, close to 1,800 years ago. Different, different languages and so on. But their ideas are still at the heart and core of the Christian faith. And there's a reason why. So, um so I spent a lot of time with Tom. I was a graduate student with him, and then went down to uh, or down to Philadelphia is to Eastern University, where I worked for 24 years. And Tom and I stayed in relationship. Mm-hmm. So I went from being uh, simply a student, being mentored by him, and really he he teaching me how to think, how to write, and so on, along with other mentors I've I've had. I've, just been gifted with these people in my life. It's been a gift to being down at Eastern and then working on projects with Tom. Mm-hmm. Very strong personality. So, and sometimes would make decisions for you without telling you. <laughs> for instance, the, uh, we had talked when we were together at Drew about the possibility of a commentary where it would simply be the ch- church fathers commenting on scripture, like a modern comment, but ancient voices. And so he came up with this idea, which was really a scary idea for me, because how in the world could we ever do a project like this? And um, what press would ever want to publish something like this, which would be a project from Genesis to Revelation of simply the church fathers commenting verse by verse on the Bible?
0: Wow. Now, how many church? I mean, when you say church fathers, you're referring to how many people?
1: Oh, well, probably in this commentary series as it finally was produced. I bet you there's 60, 70 mm-hmm. names that show up there in the commentary series. Well, Tom's personality. So he, he called me up and he said, we're, we're going to do this. And, and you're the associate editor. <laughs> Meaning you get to do all the work, right? <laughs> oh, he was an indefatigable worker, <laughs> nonstop. And uh, so so what happened, Nate, was um, we came up with the idea, and there was a whole team of people who worked on this project, Uh, uh, maybe 60, 70 people over the years. Mm -hmm. More than that. It's a very expensive project. InterVarsity Press picked up the project, and as things turned out, now in print, it's called the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, ACCS. In print now, it's finished.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nine volumes. Twenty-nine volumes. Nine volumes. So if you were preaching, for example, on the Gospel of Luke, you'd read modern commentaries. But our point would be, if you're only reading modern modern commentaries, you're not reading enough. Mm-hmm. You're not. Christian modern scholars aren't the first folks who've ever read Luke. So you could grab the commentary on Luke from the ACCS and read what the church fathers were saying about Luke, verse by verse, to, to supplement or maybe even provide the foundation hmm. for modern, modern uh, scholars on the same book. And then, and then we thought, well, what about doctrine? doctrines such as the Trinity or the Resurrection or the Incarnation and so on? So there was a, a, a series of five volumes that were produced then. Called Ancient Christian Doctrine that University Press printed uh, for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that. Add up to so you got twenty. That's twenty nine plus five is thirty four volumes. And then and then there's a there was another series that's been produced. It's still being produced called Ancient Christian Texts, okay. ACT, which are longer selections of some of the material that we'd used in Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture and which universities uh, publishing. And I think maybe now 12 to 14 volumes have been produced. Wow. So you've, we've now, in production, by a whole team of people, but Tom, the leading force, there have probably been 45 to 50 volumes produced. Wow. All based on the principle that the Holy Spirit has a history. <laughs> so okay, this shows something about it, the about modern people that's praiseworthy. We were hoping maybe to sell oh you know well each volume, maybe a thousand, <laughs> they're fairly expensive books. In the in the ancient Christian ancient Christian commentary and scripture series. So far over eight hundred thousand volumes have been sold. Whoa. Eight hundred thousand which tells me that people were waiting for these ancient voices. Yeah, those aren't Are they, cheap books. No, they're, they were. They started out at, at forty dollars a pop. Yeah, uh, people want to go back and learn, you know, from our community. Yeah, to so go forward well. Uh, so anyway, so that's a little bit about some of the work we did together. A whole team of people, but Tom was the driving voice. Mm -hmm. He always had an idea in his mind. (laughs) Later in his life, for instance, uh, and for some of us under his guidance, we began to see, for example, how ancient African theology was really the seedbed of the church's thinking. Mm. So Tom wrote a book called How Africa Changed the Christian Mind. Or form the Christian mind, never good. And so now there's a center; it's called the Center for Early African Christianity. That Tom was the driving force for founding, and that it was at Eastern University for a while. Now it's up at Yale. Hmm. The contribution of ancient African Christians, such as Augustine. Augustine was a North African Christian. Athanasius was an Egyptian in background. Uh, you had African communities done in uh, Ethiopia, mm-hmm. way way back in the in the Sudan, and so on. So this is just some of the fruit of his thinking. And then what? Uh, and so we there was a group like me. We became uh, friends, and uh, he was a mentor in many ways, a dad for me. Mm-hmm. And so in uh, November of 2016. I'm, I'm blogging about some of this stuff, as you know, on the renovary website. Uh, there was a board meeting of the Center for Early African Christianity in Oklahoma City, and I think the entire board knew that we weren't going to have Tom much longer. Mm-hmm. So poignant for us all, and he he died. He died on December eighth, and so I've been dealing with grief for uh, six seven weeks now. Not easy, but I think. Uh, in a good way. Uh, there's a writer. I mentioned this writer in uh, one of the uh, blog posts, Thomas Lynch, an undertaker up in, in Michigan with a, a Roman Catholic background. And if I have it right, he said, uh, grief is the tax we pay for loving.
0: Hmm.
1: I've been paying the tax that way. Uh, so, so Tom, uh, he had said before his death, he had said if i could i could have anything put on my tombstone it would be quote he made no new contribution to theology <laughs> he went he has spent most of his life trying to produce new ideas from his perspective had seen the fruit of those ideas so on his tombstone that's what he wanted well it it's a beautiful tombstone next to his. It's like a joint tombstone with their, their uh, with Adrida's face on the tombstone. It's beautiful. Tom's face, beautiful uh, uh, epitaphs, and so on. We went by the next day after we'd buried Tom, and somebody, a friend, had printed out and taped to the tombstone. <laughs> he, he made no new th- contribution to theology. <laughs> so so what, what I'm trying to do, in some ways, Renovari, is to take uh, old ideas and build a bridge into the modern world. And I think that was Tom's project. There's a foundation I would, I really encourage Renovari readers or listeners to uh, engage in, and that's going back to the beginning mm-hmm. and moving forward rather than the mistake I think of thinking if something is a new idea it must be better mm-hmm. a lot of new ideas being advocated today but they're ideas and almost by definition modern people will think well, well if it's new it's got to be better because it's built on the old well the problem is a lot of what's being advocated today are new ideas but they're not built on on the old ideas or they're, or they're not familiar with the old ideas mm-hmm. and so my goodness gracious, the amount of information that's being produced. Uh, Moore's Law is that information is expanding so rapidly, it's doubling every two years, mm. if you can imagine. If you can imagine. So human beings are being exposed to an enormous amount of information. The question becomes, uh, and Tom would really be concerned about this, the question becomes, what is the character the character, the human character of the human beings now being uh, immersed in a vast information expansion.
0: Hmm.
1: Among among other things, that's where these ancient writers can help us. And they can really help us with knowing what the Christian faith is.
0: Give me the the top five or ten church fathers that you think people should be familiar with.
1: Well, let's start with uh, what are known as the eight great teachers of the church, the eight great doctors of the church. Doctor just comes from a, a Latin infinitive docere, which means to teach. Mm-hmm. Somehow, the profession sold us from sold it from us in the late 19th century, I think it was. Anyway, so and here's here's the folks people should start uh, getting to know. Now, these are not perfect people, and some of the ideas will drive. Modern people, crazy. But a lot of what they're saying, boy, it can feed the mind and feed the soul. So in the East, the Greek-speaking world of that day, uh, you have John Chrysostom. Mm -hmm. He was in Constantinople, John Chrysostom. You've got Gregory of Nazianzus. You've got Gregory's best friend, Basil the Great, and you've got Athanasius
0: mm-hmm.
1: down in Alexandria. They are remarkably astute and wise. And if, if of that four, I'd probably, if, if you're unfamiliar with these folks, start with Athanasius. So in the Renovari Book Club, for example, this year, we're going to be studying, uh, for our last book of the four, we're going to be reading Athanasius on the Incarnation
0: yeah i'm I'm reading it now. We're going to do some interviews on <laughs>
1: oh so we' those four in the east Chrysostom, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great as he was nicknamed, and Athanasius okay and in the west let me see if I can get these in the west we've got Augustine, who many people think was the the greatest western theologian mm hmm Augustine, you've got Jerome, a great biblical scholar, irascible personality. Probably nobody would like him personally, but a great, you know, this is everybody? Uh, where, would we, where would we be without God's grace? So you've got, you got Augustine, Jerome, Ambrose, who was a Roman governor before he was a Christian bishop and was the man who really affected Augustine and brought Augustine back to the faith is Augustine puts it because of the kindness that Ambrose showed him. And then finally, the last one is Gregory the Great, Mm -hmm. who's a little bit later than the first three uh, and whose name has been added to the list because of the profundity of his thinking. Mm -hmm. All of them, all of them have a background in spiritual formation. Hmm. Ever divorced theology from worship. Hmm. They all argue that the best theology comes out of worship. Right. So, I know we are going for a while here, but I would really encourage uh, encourage readers to uh, and listeners uh, who who are part of that Renovar community as, as you're thinking about. Books to read. Follow, if you can. It's a challenge. Uh, Follow, if you can, C.S. Lewis's way of reading. I believe it was for every new book I read, or maybe it was every two new books I read, I must read one old book. Uh So so we could start, I would say, maybe go back to uh, the ancient church and move forward become familiar with these ancient voices there's uh, surely the voice of women one of the reasons why we don't have more ancient Christian women's voices is they didn't get published Mm. cultural environment in which they were but Basil for example and he has a brother named Gregory of Nyssa that uh, younger brother that that listeners might be interested in too they said the best theologian in the family was their sister Macrina Mm. they weren't kidding And when they quote her, you can see why they were saying such a thing. So anyway, the suggestion might be to come up with a reading program that would start with ancient voices, some of which we've mentioned, and then we just move forward into the medieval period. Uh, From the medieval period, we move forward into the time of the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, and then we move into the Enlightened period and the Modern period and so on. But it would be something... If we could picture the reading program, it'd be something like a triangle Mm. with a base or in the ancient voices. And we move forward, Uh, but force ourselves. It really is a spiritual discipline to trust that the Holy Spirit does have a history Mm. that will be involved in moving into another person's world where language is different. We have to learn their culture and so on. It's worth the effort, and I'm I'm absolutely convinced that it is.
0: Do, do you make a distinction between the church fathers and these kind of doctors of theology of the faith, and then the devotional classics?
1: Well, the the the, the title church father is now a technical title. Mm-hmm. When you hear that phrase "church father," you're you're thinking about voices from the second century up through, say the sixth or seventh century. Okay great teachers whom a, a doctor of the church is a great teacher. Oh, so Julian of Norwich mm-hmm. I think of the doctor of the church, a teacher of the church. Um, so a lot of the books that you'll find in a devotional classics for example, these are the doctors of the church and, the, and there's lots of ancient voices there, but there's uh, Reformation voices, there's Catholic voices, Orthodox voices. Um, Kathleen Norris who I've been reading just over the past like, a month or two I've read her a little bit before but she wrote a book called As- Ascedia which is just uh, what the ancients called the noontime devil it's a monastic uh, vice but it affects us all she she wrote a book about Ascedia that I I read and uh, started reading her earlier books and she's uh, one called for example the cloister walk mm-hmm is a modern person with modern background, uh, was fed by these ancient voices and joined uh, a Benedictine community. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the last, now the last voice, the last writer in devotional classics.
0: Mm.
1: So we're modern writers in devotional classics, but also ancient writers, medieval writers, and then what you can do with a book like devotional classics at the end of every entry or chapter, there's 52 names, one week for each name, cover them in a year. What your dad did, Richard, is he came up with bibliography. So, mm-hmm. for example, read a snippet from uh, Chrysostom, actually, or Gregory Onissa. He's in devotional classics. And then your dad provides bibliography. We can actually go back to the writer. Same thing with Kathleen Norris. Go back to the writer and... Start reading the text themselves, and just piggyback on these texts. And I'd say you know, four or five year project. But if you if you read devotional classics that way, and then go to the works themselves, or join the renovari book club, for example, what's going to happen is after four or five years, you'll be a much broader, deeper reader, hmm. much more nourished spiritually.
0: Well, I think there's a another Lewis quote that's helpful in this. Maybe you can share with us his definition of an uh, ignorant uh, person. Yeah.
1: My definition of an ignorant person is a person who's read a book only once. <laughs> this is really a good word for me. My tendency would be to read a book and then want to get on to the next book, mm-hmm. and which is fine. But... The question I'm asking myself now more pointedly is, well, Chris, you've just read Kathleen Norris's book. Do you actually remember what's in Kathleen Norris's book? Could you tell somebody else? (laughs) And I find that um, the way my mind works, it takes me more than one reading of a book To remember it. Mm -hmm. So my goal, and probably all of our goals, would be to actually remember what we're reading. Mm -hmm. Your dad in his chapter on the discipline of study and celebration of discipline um, helps people along this line. It's the role of repetition.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a Latin phrase, uh, repetitio mater studiorum est. A repetition is the mother of all learning and in good translation. So uh, going back to a book, maybe maybe reading it through once, just noting key ideas, go back, reading it through again, and then moving away from the book and maybe you have a journal and asking the question, what could I now write apart from the book, about the book? Mm-hmm. And if you we say, well... I've got the main ideas. Maybe I could come up with an outline. Then we go back to the book again, and we read it again. Uh, I asked myself this question about uh, four or five months ago. I was sitting in my study here at home in, in Malvern in Pennsylvania. You've seen my study. You've been to my house. <laughs> and I at these wall and I got books downstairs, and I got I got books everywhere. And Debbie, my wife, is always saying, do we need all these books? Let's let's begin culling out some of these books, which would we, we, be like ripping out my heart. <laughs> you got a point. So, so, I I was asking myself the question: if I had to reduce my library down to ten books, mm. I found it to be an impossibility. But if I if I could reduce that library down to ten books, what would the ten books be? Mm. And and uh, I wasn't able. I wasn't able. <laughs> Right. But I, I would bet, for example, that one of those ten books would be Augustine on the City of God. Uh, read very, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, very first book that Jim Packard had me read of the ancients. That would be one of the books. Probably probably Thomas the Kempis, the Imitation of Christ, maybe Pilgrim's Progress, hmm. our listeners, maybe Dexon and. That's one of Mimi's favorite books. If I had to reduce it down, apart from the Bible,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so, if I had to reduce it down, what would it be? And then we, we could add on to that list, but I think that's a, a good way of discerning. Well, what are the books I need to go back and keep reading, keep chewing on, being nourished by, and so on?
0: Well, what's wh- what's helpful is a mind shift of that we're not reading to conquer, but we're reading to engage and to learn and to grow. Um, w- one of the things I have found, so my favorite book, uh, probably my favorite book, is C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. Is it really? Yeah, and I just finished my third reading of it, and each time I read it, there's maybe five years in between, and boy, it just—it's it, almost like the years. Helped me interpret or look mm-hmm. at it differently, and um, I just found that really fun to to yeah. go back after a few years and see how I view these things differently.
1: Yeah, reader, listeners could ask the question What are the books that have fed me? What are the books that have fed me till we have faces? Was obviously fed you, but it's not an easy book, mm-hmm. it's probably the one you wrote to make sense out of. At least for some people, that's what I've heard.
0: Hey, you're making me feel good
1: now. (laughs) Um, So for listeners, if you had to choose five or ten books right now, right now, that have fed you, nourished you, number one, how many times have you read them? Probably Hmm. more than once. And what are the ideas in those books that are feeding you? And then I probably would say... If all five or ten are modern books, what are the old ones that you can begin to read? Hmm. Cass Norris is so interesting, her background. Uh, Roberta Bondi, a church historian down at Emory, another woman. For both of them, reading the church fathers fed them and nourished them. And knowing their life story, you would think these would be the last people (laughs) they would be reading but they connected with modern women across all of these years. Mm -hmm. So there's just a way of reading and uh, learning that can nourish us. And what we can do at Renovari, and it's happening with the book club, we can continue to introduce one another to books. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because a book is just a person talking to us. (laughs) You know, maybe... uh, taking more time for the speech to occur, but words on paper or words that we can now listen to that, that feed us and nourish us. And we can share books and ideas and learnings together and, and grow as a Well,
0: I'll take it a step further. These are, these are my friends talking to me yeah. uh, and, and my friends that, um, I mean, I just say this when I write, there's a certain care of the reader. And so I think of these, my friends that are trying to, um, help me pass something on and friends that we'll meet very soon. Huh? (laughs) That's
1: right. Uh, one of the hardest things, getting back to Tom, one of the hardest things to do is to say goodbye to somebody you love. Mm -hmm. And to know there's going to be a time when I can't call him up. Mm -hmm. I won't hear that voice saying, Chris, how you doing? How you doing? That's always how a conversation would start. I think I'm going to write about that a little bit on these blogs. To know that, that for a time, for a time, that voice will be stilled, at least audibly to me. But he's left behind a lot of words that I can read, a lot of things that I can remember. In fact, I can I can hear Tom saying to me, Chris. Remember. Remember our friendship. And remember what I've taught you. Remember what I've given you. Remember. It will occasionally cause you to tear up. Hmm. But remember, our relationship was a gift. Our relationship was a gift. And then he'd probably say, if I could hear him, I'm fine. Hmm. I'm fine. In fact... I'm getting to spend time with these people that I spent time with on earth for such a long time over those 40 years. Now, the whole future is opening up to me. Hmm. So, you know, it's probably going to be, I'm 67, another 20 years or so, maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter, when, when I won't be able to directly be in relationship with him. Uh, but as you and I have talked about before, I really do think that, that on one hand, we're called to live well between the times, hmm. between Christ's first and second coming. And if Jesus doesn't come back over the next 20 or 30 years, then I'm going to die. So what I want to do right now, I have this opportunity to live well as a cracked image bearer hasn't been healed fully yet. To live well now, just a little blip on the radar screen of human history and and time at large. Hmm. Live well now, to be formed and shaped into the image of Jesus as deeply as I can be now. To learn to love now, to learn to love God well now, to learn to love my family well, my neighbor well now. But it's all prologue. Hmm. it's, It's the introduction to the real story. And Tom's moved into that greater story, I think. And then I think what the future holds for us, Nate is, is not a timeless ethereal existence, but it's, it's the future. Hmm. Who knows what the future holds? Dallas would talk like this. You know who knows what we'll be doing 500 years from now or a thousand years from now? when the, the, the story, in all its glory, has opened up to us and continues to open to us in the future. Hmm. So maybe we can close with a a thought, something like this from Gregory of Nyssa, Basil's brother. So Gregory said, we will always be finite beings. Hmm. I'll always be Chris. My body's going to be raised from the. It'll be changed in some ways, future podcast. But I'll always be Chris. Tom will always be Tom. We're finite, Gregory said, and we're moving ever more deeply in the future into a relationship with God, who is infinite. Hmm. in Every beauty and wonder of God's character, infinite. So one of the joys of the future and uh, deepenings of the future and surprises for the future will be, and something that Tom is experiencing now Dallas is experiencing now for our listeners uh, think of all the image bearers that you've had to say goodbye to what what we Gregory says we'll all be experiencing is an ever growing knowledge of the wonder of God
0: mm-hmm.
1: and God will provide all the time we need for that ever progressing knowledge and movement into God mm-hmm. and what God has in store for the future Mm. among a new heavens a new earth we as we were always meant to be rinsed free from the ravages of evil and sin it's unimaginable what the future holds in store for us what's unique about our present time this in between time in between the ages time is the opportunity to live well and grow well While we're still dealing with issues of human evil, sin, whether it's in ourselves or society at large, Mm -hmm. it's a very brief time. It's a very brief time, both for for good and for evil. But the future is is unimaginable. Mm. It will be what we had hoped it would be, and even better. And I'm not being sentimental here. That's the truth. Say that again. Yeah the future will be what we had always hoped it would be and better Hmm. because of what what Father, Son and Holy Spirit have accomplished for us in the uh, incarnation of the Son Jesus of Nazareth Hmm. it's more real than than the uh, little studio you have there that you're sitting in, it's more real than what I'm experiencing sitting in my living room watching the sun radiate in on my dog Pancho. it's more not less real and it's what we had always hoped it would be so when we grieve we grieve in light of that future wonder but it still hurts hmm. yeah because among other things i love tom Mm-hmm. Yeah, I miss, I miss his voice. I miss his frail little body. I don't get to see it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, death and separation—those these partings—are not the last word. Yes. Yeah, God gets the last word, and the last word is what I just described. Yeah. Forever and ever. Amen. Oh, Amen. Amen. <laughs> hey, thanks for. Uh
0: Thanks for sharing your friend, Tom, with us today.
1: Bill, it was really a pleasure in many ways. Poignant for me, but, but a, a pleasure at the same time. Good, good.
0: Well, it's, hey. it's fun for me to see how Thomas's work has influenced yours. I mean, I hear in his story, I hear your story, and, and how all that fits in with Renovari very well. So
1: it's yeah. fact, Tom was one of the editors of the Renovari Bible. Right? The Spiritual Formation Bible, yeah. Such connections make
0: me smile. <laughs> Great. Oh, well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. All right. See you soon, Dave. Oh, that Oh, that was fun. It's good to take time to remember our mentors and teachers. Hey, I'll see you next week where we talk with the Anglican priest, Tish Harrison Warren, about a book she wrote that we're using for the book club. It's titled The Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life.